So, uh, good morning. How's everybody doing today? Good? Had a good week? Yeah? All right, good deal. So, uh, funny story, last week I was setting out the signs, as you see when you come in, um, on Canada Road up there, and I'd set the sign out, and I'm walking, and I'm almost to my truck, and thankfully, a um, lady rolled down her window, and she said, excuse me, and I said, I looked at her, she goes, um, it's pointing the wrong way. <laughs> so I turned back, and sure enough, I had I'd set the sign to point people towards Cracker Barrel instead of the refuge. I thought about that, I got in the truck, I kind of smiled, and I, it just made me think. So, you know, have you ever just felt like you made a wrong turn, right? You're going along and everything's going great, and then you take a wrong turn in life, and you end up over at the paintball park instead of church, and things kind of get a little out of whack from time to time, right? So I'm going to ask you that question I asked you to, that when we began. I asked you how you were doing. I'm going to ask it a little bit differently right now, and I'm going to ask you how you're doing this morning, but how are you doing spiritually? How are you doing spiritually this morning? We're going to be in the book of 2 Kings, and um, if you will turn there, uh, 2 Kings chapter 6, pull it up on your phone, look in your Bible, and um, I'm going to ask you that, uh, if you would, let's stand this morning when we read God's Word. Second Kings chapter 6. Verse 1, now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, see the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan and each of us get there a log and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, go. Then one of them said, be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So we went with them and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees But as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water, and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, Where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, Take it up. So he reached out his hands, and he took it. Let's pray this morning. Dear Lord, I just ask that you would open hearts and minds Um, Father, just we welcome you in this place. Um, Lord, speak through me, Lord, as we deliver your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. So this is a story for me that has always, it's fascinated me. I don't know, how how many have read that story? How many have ever read that? Show of hands. A few of you have, right? You've read it. I, I had never heard the story, and um, I was sitting in a previous church that we were at, and we were, we were in service, and I heard one of, the, one of the men on the other side of the church, he made just a comment, he said, well, if God can make an axe float, he can meet you where you are. And this has probably been, realistically, 12, maybe 13 years ago. And I remember thinking when he said it, I was like, an axe float? Like, I've never read that. Um, so I... I went home, I I read it, found it, read it, and after about, I guess, eight years later, I wrote this sermon based on that passage. It was about five years ago. It's the first sermon I ever wrote. 
So I don't know if you're in for a treat or, or not, but I hope it will speak to you this morning the way that it spoke to me 13 years ago, and it stayed with me all this time. But before we dive deeper into Elisha and the floating axe head, I want to tell you about a trip that I took several years back. Um, as many of you know that my job uh, requires me to travel on a somewhat regular basis. And so over the last 15 years, I've gone to many different places uh, across this country, uh, around the world. And through all of my travels, one trip that stands out as the most memorable trip to me and the re most remarkable um, and to this day, it still gives me just uh, the, the holy goosebumps, if you will, when I think about it. It was in January of 2010, and I was asked to travel to Mumbai, India. Okay? I actually told, I told Scott, I looked this up. It was 10 years ago Friday when I did this. So think about how God works sometimes. So 10 years ago on Friday, I was asked to travel to Mumbai, India for a conference. Um, and, and when I was asked to travel at the time, I didn't think much of it. I, uh, I told Michelle, hey, I'm going to India. No big deal. Um, I asked a couple of the doctors that I work with who are Indian. I, I went to them. I said, hey, what, are you, what, what kind of advice can you give me? I'm going to Mumbai. And their advice was watch Slumdog Millionaire. So I did. If you've ever watched that movie, it's a good movie. It's actually a lot of, it's, it's good. Um, so that, that's where I got my education on Mumbai. And that about sums it up. Um, asked my boss, I said, hey, you think I got to do anything special before going to India? He's like, I'll just buy a ticket. You got a passport, bought a ticket. So the week leading up to the trip, I was really busy. Um, as it, ha as, as, as it happens to us in life, I got consumed with my job, with this trip. My priorities weren't in line. I had almost become to the point where I was troubled. Um, I started to worry about the trip. Um, my prayer time had been compromised. My Bible reading had been compromised. I was just not in a good place spiritually. So here I was about to travel 8,500 miles from home, 10 and a half time zones difference, 23 hours of travel time to a country that is dominated by religion. The problem is that religion is not Christianity. So with just a few facts on the population of India as of 10 years ago. The population's 1.25 billion people spread out across 1.27 million miles. If you compare that to the United States, we have about 320 million people living in the United States spread out over 3.8 million square miles. So if you do the math, you take it's four times as many people living in a country about a third the size of the United States. Out of the 1.25 billion people in 2010, only 2.3% uh, were Christian. So we'll set an example for that right now, okay? We'll set an example for that. Where's Zach? How many people in here? Probably 200. We'll say there's 200 people in here. So Noah, stand up. Yes, you. Stand up. There you go. Uh, Larry? 
McBee, you stand up. Paul, stand up. Uh, Stephen, stand up. One, two, three, four. Jason, Walgren, stand up. All right. So if we're walking through the country of India, this is how many Christians you would bump into. So to make it better, let's make it a little bit better. Now you guys sit down and everybody else stand up. All right. So your odds of bumping into a Christian in the streets of India are probably like a proverbial needle in a haystack. Would everybody agree? Everybody agree? All right, good. All right, sit down. Thank you for participating. Okay, so every, every other, everybody else is either a Hindu or a Muslim uh, or a Buddhist or the other three uh, religions. Um, on a side note, the average height is about 5'6". Um, that comes in, that's real important here in a minute, Okay. So I'm getting ready to go to a country where I'm going to be in the minority big time. Um, as I prepared to leave, I was at a, a men's Bible study at that same church, and I was sitting next to a guy, and this was literally about uh, six days before I was supposed to leave, and his name's Tim. We called him Big Tim, and he looked at me, and he said, how are you doing? And I gave that answer, fine, I'm good. And he just, he looked through me, and he says, no, how are you doing spiritually? And it just like bore a hole through me. And I, I broke down. And I was, I was a wreck inside. I limped in, as you said this morning. I was limping. And I just told him. It's about five or six men, and I told him. I said, man, I'm, I'm not good. I hadn't, been, I hadn't been in the Word. I hadn't been praying. And, and I'm going on this trip, and I'm, I'm anxious about it. And, and we stopped, and we prayed. I'm telling you, there's a lot to that. You stop and pray. When it's, you just stop and pray. We stopped and we prayed, and it was almost like a burden had lifted off of me. You see, when Christians, as, when we're not well spiritually, struggles carry an extra burden. Struggles will weight you down, and life is not going as well. And, and so it's just going to get you to do it again. Ask yourself this morning, how are you doing spiritually? Or as we've stated a little bit differently over the last uh, few weeks, where are you? Where are you this morning? Where are you in life? Where are you in your walk as a Christian? Where are you? So we go back to my trip. I'm preparing to leave. My original date to leave was on a Tuesday afternoon. That would put me in Mumbai on Wednesday at midnight. Say Thursday morning, early, early Thursday morning. Um, because I'm not, at the time, an experienced world traveler, I had some glitches with my passport. And I didn't leave until Thursday night. And I arrived on Saturday morning at 5 a.m. in Mumbai, India. Okay? Left D.C. to Mumbai. My meeting started at 9 a.m., on Saturday morning. Um, so jet lag is an understatement in that travel pattern. I don't recommend that to anyone. Um, on top of that, as I'm working my way through customs, um, I could see really well. Remember the height thing, okay? But I couldn't see my bags. Couldn't find my bags, and I'm, you know, five in the morning, 
looking for my bags. I go, and I'm trying to find the baggage uh, guy or baggage lady, and I found a guy, and he was, he was at his desk, and he was literally like this, sound asleep. So we figured out my bags were not in Mumbai. They actually never went to Mumbai. They went to Abu Dhabi, which is a, a different country. Um, and so the challenge, the little challenge to shop when you're 6'3 in India is not, it just doesn't happen. So those clothes had to last me about another 72 hours. So that was fun. But so the day was a blur. So I'm there at five in the morning. I've got a driver. He picks me up. We start driving to the hotel and we go through the slums. Um, if you've ever watched that movie, those slums are right outside the airport, one of the biggest ones. It's a million people live in the slums uh, right by the airport in Mumbai. And you rode along, you see poverty like you've never seen it. Um, it's, it's indescribable. And so I'm riding with these various drivers that are assigned to me by the hotel. They have a, just a group of drivers who speak English, and they're, you know, they're always there for you to call them. So I just was curious. So the first driver, I'm like, I wonder what religion he is. So I asked him. I was like, so what religion are you? And so he was a Buddhist. And so we kind of drive along trying to make small talk. The next day, I'm, or excuse me, later that day, I have another driver who uh, was a Hindu, um, as you saw the chart, that's not a surprise. Fast forward that afternoon, I have another Hindu driving me around. Um, the next morning, the guy was Muslim. It's very interesting, the culture there, which we won't go into. But um, Sunday afternoon came around. And so Sunday afternoon, we finished our meeting, and I was traveling with a colleague who's from um, France, and we wanted to go tour the city. So we just went down and we asked, can we have a driver just take us around and tour the city for about two or three hours? Um, and, and so we get in a car. Um, you got to understand, when we were going in and out of that hotel, we were stopping at a gate. Some of the military in here will understand. You stop at the gate. They look under the car with the mirrors. There's a big steel bar. They raise it up for you to go in. And every time you're coming and going, you're going through that. That'll give you a little bit of anxiety if you're not used to it. Um, so that afternoon's going to be different. So we're leaving for our tour, and for some reason, instead of asking the driver what his religion was, which is what I'd done with all five or six drivers before, I just asked the guy's name. And I said, so ask him his name, and he, I'll never forget this. He turns around, and he, he looks in the mirror, and he goes, my name's Lazarus. I said, hmm, Lazarus, what religion are you? I'll never forget the smile that came on his face. He says, you should know my religion by my name. <laughs> he says, I am a Christian. So here I am, and I have found that proverbial needle in a haystack. Can you imagine my relief, the anxiety that I've been feeling all of a sudden? I got Lazarus going to drive me around in Mumbai, India. So we're driving around, and it, and it was it just was awesome. What a moment, right? And we stop. We're taking pictures, and so we stop and we get out, and you know we stand out literally. Andre, the guy I was traveling with, he's six five. He's Russian, so he's really really light skinned, and me and 
we're, you know, just really standing out in the crowd. So we're taking pictures, and these kids come up, and they're like, hey, hey, can we, can we have some money? All right, so I reach in my pocket. I had a money clip at the time, grabbed the money clip out, and this little kid who was probably maybe six years old, he grabbed my money clip, and I'm telling you, he was doing everything he could to pull the whole wad out of my hand. And I'm like caught off guard, and I'm holding on to it, and all of a sudden, here comes Lazarus running around the corner of a car with a rolled-up newspaper, and he starts hitting this kid on the head. <laughs> and then he looks at me, and he says, don't do that again. I said, don't worry, Lazarus. I'm, he said, don't give anybody anything. Um, so I didn't. Uh, but So Lazarus came to my rescue. We continue to drive. We get to know Lazarus and his life, and and and. An amazing, amazing story, and we stopped again to look around. He was with us the whole time. It was like he was our protector. He realized, I can't stay at the car and let these guys come back. I've got to go with them. So he drops us off at the, at the hotel, and he looks at me. He goes, hey, if you request me, I can drive you back to the airport tonight. Um, I'll take you to the airport. I was like, oh, that's great. So he took me to the airport, and, and we, we said our goodbyes, and I, I remember distinctly, I looked at him, and what I wish, I wish at the time you didn't have the camera phones, I wish I'd have taken a picture with him, but I just looked at him, and I said, Lazarus, I'm pretty sure I won't ever see you again in this life, but I'm really positive I'm going to see you again someday. And I know that was a long story, and you might be wondering where I'm going to go with all this, but I, I'll, I'll tell you the story to say this. Here I was, 8,500 miles away from home in a land dominated by false religions, anxious, nervous, a little scared at times. And God sent a Christian named Lazarus to drive me around. I don't believe there's any coincidence in that at all. So we get back and look at our scripture. So if I studied this passage, and I've come across several different interpretations, um, one of the interpretations that I... Um, Actually, the one that I really liked, it was actually from a book written on Elisha by a Jewish rabbi. So it was very interesting to see the perspective that this Jewish rabbi has on the life of Elijah, but specifically on this passage. So his breakdown that I, I really like, it's, it's what makes sense to me. So let's look at the first verse. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. So if you know your Bible history, you know Elisha was after Elijah. And Elisha was, he was, he was a great teacher. He had students under him. He had, he had followers, okay? So this is a group of his followers, a group of his students that are studying under him, and they, they proclaim to him, hey, look, our space, it's just not big enough. Our house, it's too small. They're not happy with their arrangements at the time. They're not content with where they are as they study under Elisha. We'll look at verse 2. It says, let us... Let us go to the Jordan and each of us get there a log and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, go. 
So they come to Elisha. They, their place is too small. They've determined that they need to go and, and build a bigger facility, a bigger place by the Jordan. And Elisha gives a one-word answer, and it's go. And so in some translations, it says do so. But it's, it's like, all right, then go do what you got to do, right? So this, this rabbi, his interpretation, the way that Elisha answers, it's indicative that he's not real happy with them. It's a short answer. It's, a, it's just a one-word answer. They seem to be pursuing their own will and not necessarily God's will. You know, they got to have a bigger house. Almost like they were taking a left instead of taking a right. And, and it's like, I, I feel like when you look at this, you really study, it's like Elisha is saying to them, well, go on and, and go to the Jordan and build your house. I don't think it's a very good idea, but, you know, if you're going to do it, go do it. Have you ever done that? Life? You're going down one way and... and you know it's not the right way. You know it's not the right way. Are you seeking God daily? Are you seeking his will? Are you seeking his will for your life? Or are you seeking your own will? So as they're heading to the Jordan, Elisha's not going. So they come back and they ask him, they said, in verse 3, they said, one of the servants said to him, be pleased to go with your servants. And so he answers them. He says, I will go. You might sit there and say, well, if he didn't approve, why did he go with them? So my interpretation of this, the way I see this is, I see Elisha as a representation of Jesus Christ. Elisha didn't approve of them going to the Jordan, but he went with them anyway. It's no different than we are walking through this life and we're mired in sin. It's no different than we make choices that are selfish, decisions that don't make sense. Even though Christ doesn't approve of those decisions, he is standing beside us. No matter where you are in life, he's there. So Elisha goes with him. So, so he went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. So they're going to build their building, they're going to build their house, their new dwelling, they're going to cut their own logs down. Well, here we get to verse 5, it says, but as one of them was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. So the prophet had lost the head of his axe. So everybody knows what an axe is, right? Okay, so it flies off the handle into the Jordan. The Jordan's not the clearest river. It's not a stream. It's an actual river and it's deep and it's muddy. And it's gone. It sank to the bottom. It's not like there is a, uh, a Home Depot on the corner of Jericho that he can go buy another axe. 
You see, see, iron tools in that day were extremely valuable tools. They were not just sitting anywhere you went. There's a reason why, A, he had to borrow it, probably because he didn't own one of his own. He didn't have the money to buy one because they were rare. They weren't just easily to get to. So the fact that now he's lost his tool to cut down his log is a problem, but it's also a dilemma because it was borrowed. And he's going to owe whoever he borrowed it from, he's going to have to pay him back. So they lost their main, axe, main asset, and they owe the owner a new axe. As we said, the axe is an extremely valuable tool, and just like that axe was a very, very, very valuable tool to the student, we are valuable. You are valuable. Everyone in here is valuable. Our Lord Jesus Christ, you're precious to him. That he doesn't want you to go astray. He doesn't want you to fall into the river. Just like that axe head is borrowed, we're not our own. You've been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. You've been bought and paid for with a price. So they go to Elisha and they, they said, it's, we've lost our axe head. And Elisha's response in verse 6, the man of God, it says, where did it fall? So the student said, showed him the place. He cut off a stick and he threw it in there and he made the iron float. I like the King James Version. It says, the iron did swim. Be, let's just do physics here. Does iron float? No. Will an axe head just magically come off the bottom of a river once it's down there? No. But he said to him, where did it fall? See, see, Elisha, he needed him to go back to the place, right, where, he had, where, the, where the axe head fell off. Like, we need to sometimes go back to the place where that bad decision was made. And he needed to show it. He, he said, show me where it fell. And he said, it fell right there. And he could have done anything, but what does Elisha do? He cuts off a stick. He cuts off a stick and he throws it into the water and the iron did float. The iron did swim. See, that axe head had been caught in the unclean, muddy waters of the Jordan River, caught in the depths of the muddy bottom. The weight, the density, the rushing of the river would cause it to sink. Think about it. If it falls in the mud and the bottom of a river, it's going to sink in that mud. Seemingly lost forever. The old, the, the stick, the wood that Elisha throws into the water, he causes the irons, he causes that iron's nature to change. The old nature caused it to sink, but its new nature causes it to rise up causes it to float from the depths below. And he looks at the student and he says, take it up. So the student reaches out and he grabs it. Anybody ever felt like that axe head? Everybody felt like you've just been drowning? 
Maybe you're, you're, you know, we ask you where you are. Maybe you're sitting here today and maybe like Scott said, you limped in. You may feel like you're sitting on the bottom of the Mississippi River and you can't get up and, and, and it's, nothing is in sight and you're drowning. See, sin will cause you to sink deeper and deeper into the miry mud and you can't pull yourself out. You ever had thoughts like, if I had only done this or I wish I would have done that or more importantly, and I wish I hadn't have done this. So listen. See, just like Elijah asked where that axe head fell, Jesus comes looking for you. He searches for us. He's seeking us. He's seeking to save that which is lost. See, Elijah threw a tree, a piece of wood into the Jordan River. Just like Jesus used that cross on Calvary. See, that, that, that wood represents what we can reach for to float back to the surface. Just like that stick caused that axe head to float. It was just a piece of wood, right? It was just a stick. But it was so much more. It's just a piece of wood. Oh, but it's so much more this morning. The axe head required the wood to come back to life. It's no different than, than us. We require the cross for eternal life. I'm going to read Micah 7, 18 through 19. It says this. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. I'm going to ask you this question again. Where are you this morning? So wherever you are, it doesn't matter. You don't have to get to a certain place. You don't have to get yourself tidied up to a certain place to come to Jesus and to seek the cross. See, he'll meet you where you are. He will meet you there. You see, if God can send Lazarus to drive me around Mumbai, India, he can meet you right where you are this morning. All you got to do is reach for him. Let's bow our heads.